Hi, and welcome back to the Director's Notes podcast. I'm Marbell, Editor-in-Chief. Ten years in the making and spanning three decades in the life and career of underground DJ, music producer and record label owner James Lavelle, feature documentary The Man from Mowax provides a compelling look at the foundation and implosion of one of the 90s most influential record labels and the driven man behind it who made careers, hits and a fair amount of enemies along the way. I sat down with first-time feature director Matthew Jones to discuss the many hurdles he surmounted to bring James Lavelle's Warts and All story to screen. Hi Matt and welcome to Director's Notes. Hi, thanks for having me. So as a listener of the podcast, I'm sure you're aware that the first question I'm going to ask you is, you know, what is it that brought you to directing and filmmaking? Yeah, I've definitely listened to Director's Notes in the past myself. You know, this is my debut feature. So, you know, up until kind of now that this film is out, I've just been filling my my ears with, with as much information from other directors about how you do this job. And um, definitely what your podcast and website was definitely a really good portal for doing that. I didn't go to film school at all. I'm not practical film school, that is. I did a degree in English literature and film, kind of half-half. So you kind of studied cinema in the way that uh, literature students study Shakespeare and looking for themes in directors' work and that kind of thing. So just just watching films for three years was my degree. So then after that, I came back um, from university, decided I wanted to get into making films. Initially, it was through producing. I produced a couple of short films the people I'd met. I got into the industry through starting my own short film evening with um, a whole bunch of friends in Soho. We had a friend who was working in a bar in Soho. They had a massive function room. They said we could have a function room for free and they would give us loads of free beer if we could fill it and put on something. Nice. So we decided to do short film screenings. So yeah, that's where it started for me. I set up my own production company with someone I met at one of those screenings. And off the back of that, over many years of toil and teaching myself and DIY, doing like um, odds and ends, different bits of like online content for YouTube and Facebook, we gradually built a client base up and um, we came across this project uh, kind of by accident, really. Yeah, because your initial dealings with um, James Laval, that came from a commission to what document the tour of um, the war stories, Uncle Album. Yes, that's right. I would not call it a commission <laughs> in the sense that what happened was that James was recording, it was when he was kind of transitioning Uncle from kind of the DJ outfit more into a live band. So this is kind of like 2006, post-Napster, but pre-Spotify, almost pre-YouTube um, at this point. And it's kind of like when bands had to play live to make any money because kind of the, the download um, world was kind of falling apart with people just downloading things for free. So at that point, they were going on tour. They were going to do an international tour with their third album, War Stories. And he was rehearsing in a place called you know, The Premises in Hackney Road in, uh, in East London. And my cousin owns a pub, which is across the road from The Premises, called The Marksman. And he got to know my cousin. And then they just said they needed a producer to help his new wife at that point um, put together a series of online tour diaries to document the tour and go on tour like as the wife of the you know the, the head of of uncle and sort of chart their journey around the world as they took the band live for the first time so we facilitated that and we managed to get sponsorship from sony for a couple of uh, sony ex1s very like cutting edge camera at the time the sony gave us two of those in kind sponsorship for the project and that really kicked us off and then uh, we took those around the world for like a year whilst they toured with their third record war stories and they did other events in London and we just kind of picked stuff up here and there. 
initially, like I said, it was going to be tour stories. It's going to be this online diaries thing to go online. But then after a while, we just kind of thought there was a, initially, well, I'd just done a load of research into Moax. I just thought there was a bigger story in James's past. And the main thing that warranted a film about James Lavelle is the Moax record label. Although I think you couldn't really do one without that that element really and everything that happened back in the, the 90s around Moax the artists they discovered and, and sort of the the amazing things they created but also the, the way in which it all fell apart so acrimoniously so that was kind of what the starting point of it and then they just said after the tour they said oh we're doing a new album you've got to stick around and film that and that can be part of the documentary too and we kind of said okay and then that album took like another two and a half years little did we know at the time that's what we were signing up to so at what point did it become crystal clear that you were going to go all the way back to um, you know, chart James's beginnings from a 14-year-old DJ to where he was when you met him and beyond? I mean, like I said, when we met James, he was very much in the thick of making Uncle a live band. He just started his second label, Surrender All. Whenever we were reading about him and researching it, the main thing that stood out was, you know, the label and all the artists signed to it, like DJ Shadow, Black Alicious, Money Mark, um, Uncle, how Uncle came out of it all. And that was... All of the stories and some of the fragments of footage that we were able to see at the time, we just thought there was just something really exciting there. It was like an underground 90s music scene that was like kind of underneath Britpop, you know, in the sense that Britpop was the mainstream thing that everyone knew about. And James has like occupied the area underneath the underground where he knew a lot of, you know, the headliners, you know, people like Richard Ashcroft, Tom York. Jarvis Cocker, all people that have worked with James over the years. But, you know, he was very much part of an underground scene which had never really been documented in documentary form. So we just thought this is what's exciting about this story. And uh, that's where it started, really, just researching it. You've described this in, in other interviews, the film, as, you know, it's a warts and all documentary. And yeah, I've seen it written up as a rise and fall, but it's kind of almost like the rise and fall and then fall and then fall and then fall. You know, so there's some really painful moments there. Yeah, where it became a film after about, you know, six months of editing, it started to be clear that it, it was. And once we'd done a few interviews, there was a film... You know, it was a film about the music business, as much as it was happening in the music business, it was about the music business. And we kind of thought, you know, the one thing that's kind of constant for almost everyone in the music business, unless you're you too or Madonna and have been around for like 40 years, is kind of you do have this massive success from a young age. It's almost a cliche, you know, the musician that breaks really young. And then, you know, that's where that, that phrase, you know, difficult second album comes from, you know. It's like, how do you follow up that success? How do you top that kind of level of notoriety when you've kind of, you've had like probably the biggest thing that could ever happen to anyone at such a young age? So that starts kind of a really big theme. And then inevitably, I think a lot of people fail at that point and you can't top, you know, your first amazing record that broke you. It's a very hard thing to do. And that process of reinvention in the music industry is, again, something that almost every artist comes up against and has to kind of try and battle through. Those are the key themes uh, for the film, really. And then just from the interviews we did, it started to become a bit of a, to a degree, a play on failure and what failure is like. But having said that, we never wanted it to end in a tragic, kind of depressing way where, you know, the, the guy just doesn't achieve his dreams and that's it. So we, we were waiting around after the fourth album, which is kind of the biggest standpoint in the film. We could have ended the film there and kind of tied up the documentary and gone, oh, well, we can't wait around forever to this story to be finished. But we did. We kind of just sat on it and waited to see what James did next. And then the Meltdown Music Festival happened in 2014, which I don't want to give anything away in the film, but it's a fantastic way of James was able to look back at the past and 
and you said it was it was you know rise and fall and fall and fall. I think it's like rags to riches, and then back to rags, and then back to redemption. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, yeah. Kind of. I like to think it ends with a positive outlook for the future. That's what we planned anyway. How hard was it for you to get behind his barriers? and for him to be open and allow you to explore the you know, fractious relationships he had, you know, the most famous of which being the you know, shadow relationship. I think James is a very loyal person, but I think he's also been burnt a lot by people he was very deep friends with over the years. And I think that's kind of, you know, slightly tinged the way he kind of looks at new collaborations and that affected us as, as a production, really. So it took us it took us years to really build that trust to the point where we could do long interviews where he would be honest with us. Like, it didn't happen in the first year. He was quite standoffish for the first couple of years of being there, I've got to be honest. I think he was sceptical about, you know, what it would be. I think he was, he was worried about what digging up the past would do for him and his relationship with other people. And so it took, it took about two years of just being around him. I think once, you're, once you've been there for two years, he kind of realises we're not just trying to make a, a fast buck on his name. Do you know what I mean? We were trying to do something which was deadly serious and had a had a human quality and was was digging for the truth that was what we always wanted to do so that people watching it would kind of take something away from it and learn something from James's life experience I think eventually he got that but it did take a long time to build that trust yeah and eventually he just started opening up more started allowing us to be around different parts of of his artistic process more and then he started just uh, giving us old archives and one of the biggest turning points in the whole film was when um, James, it was, it was just me and him in his, um, in his little office in uh, Edgware Road at the time. And he, he was just looking through all these shelves of boxes. He went, oh, yeah, here you go. Take this. And he pulled out this like, Tupperware box of like, old mini DV and old like, tape formats from the 90s. Some of which I didn't, I'd never seen before. It was like this really small one called Micro MV, which we had to buy a player off eBay just to be able to watch. And it was on some of those tapes that we found footage with him and Ian Brown, him and uh, Tom York, him and DJ Shadow recording some of Uncle's most well-known songs. So, yeah, it was it was interesting. But it was only after, I think I'd known him for about three years before he gave me that box. So it took a long time. Some of the archive material that you use in the film as well, I believe it has come from other documentary attempts. Yeah, some of it was really lucky. I mean, to give you two examples, one of the main interviews we have, he's got blonde hair in it, and it was taken from an MTV production from 1990, I think it was 1995, I think, might be 96. And um, this is an MTV production, they, they planned on making a documentary on Moax, and I found the tape through uh, just doing a general archive search for the MTV library. And on the DVD, the DVD screen that came back, it said, take one of two. And after I watched it, it was like half an hour of rushes from an interview with James, really young James. And I was like, this is amazing, it's amazing. When was this broadcast and when can I see the other tape? I said to MTV. And they said, oh, it was never broadcast and there is no other tape. And the, the story transpired, basically, they'd started making this documentary, they'd filmed everything. And for some reason, the tapes got split up. So most of the tapes ended up in another building. And then there was a huge fire at MTV, which they lost a lot of their archives in that fire. And so half of that production was burnt down. So they were just left this one tape of this interview. And they said, well, we can't make the documentary with that. So they just binned the idea, but kept the tape in their archive, luckily enough. So once we found that, that was a huge, huge breakthrough. So that's one example. The other one was like, we've got Charles Peterson in our film, famous radio DJ. We were looking into like young footage of him. And we found a filmmaker who's in his early 20s at the time. He was making a documentary on Charles Peterson's DJ night at the Fridge um, in South London at the time. 
and he started making a mini documentary about Giles Peterson. And <laughs> simply because he was living with his parents in the 90s, he was living at home, trying to get this documentary off the ground, he'd never finish it. So in the end, he just shelved it. We found the VHS tape of it and then tracked this guy down. He's a filmmaker now. He didn't even know where the tapes were. I think he had to go back to his parents' house and find them in his parents' loft, which were these old tapes of Charles Peterson DJing when he was friends with James back in the, the early 90s when they had a nightclub together. So stuff like that happened. You know, most of the footage wasn't found on YouTube or anything. Most of it was found through, like, contacts and phone calls and asking people to do things like that, you know, go and find their old footage in their parents' loft. So, yeah, it was an adventure. Good fun trying to find it all. Took a long time. Given the amount of time you spent with this documentary, and, you know, as you said at the beginning, this is your first um, feature directorial project. How did you find your approach to things like interviewing James and the way that you envisaged the film evolved over the, you know, decade of making it? I suppose initially we always wanted to make, like, a film which was about the Moax record label and also about Uncle and then also about how that band had evolved. But the only time we realised we had like a three-act structure and it was right there before us was when he got Meltdown, and that was announced, and we were like, when we realised what Meltdown was going to be, and it was like a retrospective of James's favourite music, and there was going to be an exhibition on Moax. Consider when you know the, the ins and outs of what happened with Moax, it was perfect, really, on paper, that this was going to be the ending we wanted. Yeah. Once that uh, festival was announced, and we knew, like, the kind of people that were going to be involved in the festival and knowing what we knew about the Moax years and James's involvement with everyone and how his, a lot of friendships had kind of been soured by the way the label had finished. Having Meltdown and what they were going to do with Meltdown, we knew that that would be our ending. So it was only, that was only in 2013 we kind of had the plan of how we were going to edit the film. And then it was only once that was announced that we actually started editing, really. So we had all these hours and hours of footage that built up but we never sat down as an editor for months and, and tried to grind out a narrative. We knew what we had, but we hadn't started playing with it. It was only kind of mid to late 2013 that we started looking at the edit. So then by the time Meltdown came along in the summer of 2014, we had a good rough cut of the first half of the film. And so we knew how Meltdown could fit into that at the end. So, and then after Meltdown, it went on for another, approximately about another year after we'd shot Meltdown of editing. Yeah. It was about, it was almost two years of editing. I, I call it more like 18 months of actual editing spread over two years because we had breaks and our editor couldn't work for that length of time and had other projects. With you know, 700 plus hours of footage of mixed formats, different qualities from different sources, from a practical standpoint, how did you organise that? I was at the um, screening you did at the um, London Film Festival and you were saying that you spent three months just watching stuff and then you actually, you know, we have to actually start. Yeah, Alec, who came in, spent the first three months just watching things. He didn't do any editing. It was just about seeing what was there and trying to sift through all of it. In that three months, he couldn't even watch it all. Do you know what I mean? It was kind of like getting a gist for what was there. So it was, yeah, I mean... How did we organise it? We just, we just had it by year, really. As a year would come in, we would just kind of pull everything in. We knew we were making a film that would cover like almost three decades, about 25 years worth of time. We kind of like did a, an edit beat sheet. So we would kind of go, okay, well, this is the first act. I always knew in the first act I wanted it to be Establish Your James's, sets up a record label, Moax. It's this massive, rapid, extremely exciting rise to fame. 
you know, in like kind of 30 minutes. And I wanted that to be how we started the film. So once we'd done that, we kind of then broke that 30 minutes down into, okay, establish who James is, establish what Moax is, you know, establish the artist on the label. So then gradually, as we were sifting through all the archive, we're compartmentalizing it into these kind of sub moments within the film as we built the narrative. Because we knew what the three acts were. We knew the structure of the film loosely. And so within that structure, we were just trying to like give ourselves coverage, if you know what I mean, for, so that when we got to certain bits, we knew we had like a bank of footage we could go and draw from to tell that bit of the story. That's how we did it, really. And we designed our interviews in a similar way. So we kind of tried to ask all our interviewees the same kind of questions to keep it to that three-act narrative. Yeah. A lot of our interviews happened after we started editing. Because a lot of our edit is made from pre-existing archive footage, we were able to assemble it to a small degree before we did a lot of our key interviews. So that helped because that's just the nature of the film was predominantly first person, primary source archive. We were trying to tell it in a kind of linear, in the moment kind of a way. It would be similar to like Asif Kapadia's films, Senna and Amy, the way in which he constructed those. We weren't as hateful of talking heads as he is. We have talking heads in our film, but we were limited, do you know what I mean? Because we wanted to try and put you in James's shoes and take you back to that time in the in the mid-90s. Did you discover any um, surprises in, in the footage, you know, as you were sifting through it, that you hadn't intended necessarily to put that story or that angle in the film, but you came across the footage and it was gold, so you found a way to accommodate it? Yeah, several times. I mean, that was, that's kind of the fun, really. It's almost like DJ Shadow, the way he would dig for samples. We were, like, digging for you know, just scraps and moments in the archive, those scraps add up to like, you know, a great whole. So we found, like I said, the, the footage of James recording Rabbit in the Headlights at George Lucas's Skywalker Ranch with DJ Shadow in the studio. We found that by chance on an unlabeled tape. It was in one of James's boxes. Um, we found this other amazing footage of James dressing up as Darth Vader on a VHS tape. Um, we found footage of James's seminal DJ night called That's How It Is. We found that on a VHS tape. And in the end, what you see in the end film is actually a digitized version of the VHS tape because the filmmaker had lost the original rushes. So, you know, like there's everything in this film from mini DV to 4K, red, you know, to VHS. There's kind of a myriad of different archive sources. I think it's all the stronger for it because it kind of keeps it lived in and authentic. I kind of love it when films have like a, you know, it isn't all crisp and clean and it's all kind of, you know, the the formats grow up as James grows up. Yeah. Well, the other thing as well that for me that I, you know, picked out as a, you know, as a fan of the label is in the film, like we've discussed, you know, you use interviews, but there's no kind of voiceover, that type of approach. And yet, though, you do kind of comment or kind of almost these invisible chapters in the films where you use like little samples that have come from the records that would have been sampled. So was that something that was immediately obvious to you? No, that's something I can't claim credit for. That was an idea that Alec, the editor, came up with. He was just like, you know, these guys sample other people's records. We should kind of sample those records and use them in a similar way. Mm -hmm. So the, the records started to underline the themes of the film. So what we did from that point on, once he made that point, we kind of went through the back catalogue of Moax tracks and we looked the tracks which kind of said stuff about the themes in our film and the journey James was on. So yeah, we tried to subtly always, the songs that we picked, try and make sure we listened to every line and read every lyric so that we're picking the appropriate lyric that kind of subtly hints at what's going on in the film and yeah, it was definitely deliberate. Were there any issues when it came to rights given that Moax was, you know, 
no longer James's and hadn't been for, for a while there. So including all the music that you did in the film, was that um, a pain at all? Uh, so it took a long time. <laughs> so we had like 53 tracks in the film. And you think uh, all of these tracks are owned by different people. You know, each individual track is between, in some cases, just five people. In some cases, like 12 different parties who all have a creative sign-off of the use of that track. This is what happens when, you know, you make tracks that are sample heavy. You know, the samples get to have a say on if the track gets used in some instances. Like David Bowie owns like a small percentage of an uncle track. We had to get him to sign off one of the uncle tracks we used. The tiny percentage, but we still had to go through the, our music supervisor, uh, Sarah Jane Hussain, she had to go through a really laborious process of making sure she had, you know, paperwork from every single writer and every single publishing record label company. And it was such a, a mess of rights owned by so many different people. It took a long time. I mean, that process itself, you know, was happening in tandem with the edit. And it took nearly two and a half years just to kind of get all that paperwork approved. It was difficult. It was not easy. Not easy at all. Because you're also dealing with people who still to this day don't get on with James because of what happened. And people who have fallen out with James creatively over the years. Yeah. And you're trying to persuade them to all be in the James Lavelle film and approve the music for very little budget. It's kind of it's, uh, it's an uphill task. I can imagine as I said, I first saw the film at the London Film Festival, you know, in, in you know, the nice big cinema there. And then I rewatched it actually last night to prepare for our interview. Yeah. I watched it on my nice big screen at home and I've got, you know, I've got decent sound at home. But watching it in the cinema, comparing the two experiences, it feels like a concert film. It feels that when you can crank it up, it feels like you're on your way out to a club and, you know, the, the tune's just about to drop. You know, I kind of find myself dancing away in my chair. So, um... <laughs> For each moment that you're going through, there would have been several tracks that you could have used. So I'm wondering how much you approached it, almost like a DJ set, the way that James would have approached it himself. Yeah, so we, before we started editing, I had a an iPod Touch. <laughs> this is showing the age of the film. I had an iPod Touch loaded up with all the Moak songs we could find. And when we knew we were making the film, we just kind of gradually bought CD after CD and James gave us a load of stuff. And then we just kind of digitised all of that. So I had almost every Moak song on an iPod. And so that was how I would start to listen to it in my spare time. So I started to know the back catalogue. And then Alec came in, the editor, and then he listened to a bunch of stuff and suggested some more. And between us, we kind of just gradually honed it down. I mean, I think in one of the early cuts, there was more like 70 songs. And then we realised we just didn't have the money for that amount of music. So we had to go back and, and trim it down and like kind of just use the bare bones of the music that was essential because we realized you know this is a an underground genre of music that probably most people have never heard mm -hmm. so you need to play the seminal tracks and you need to give them some space and time you know let people hear it for the first time so that was always a big part of this you know you can't just have talking heads talking about the human story about a record label if no one has any of the music in their minds to cling on to to know what the hell everyone's so concerned about yeah you know if you were to make a film about michael jackson i think you don't have to work so hard because everyone's so familiar with the music. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the tough things about our film is we're trying to make this film that spanned three decades of this guy's life and at the same time introduce everyone to, you know, the whole label's worth of music. And not just the label, but beyond the label and everything James did afterwards. So it was that was one of the hardest things was to squeeze all that into like a, you know, a sub two hour film. Yeah. And the mix was really important as well. I think the reason it sounds like you said, like that is, we had a fantastic mixing team at Molinaire, George Folgem, 
Zavri recording mixer. He's one of the best in the business. He's done you know, many, many feature length docs and they're just really good at making the music sound like you were in a club. Mm. Um, you know, distorting it to a degree in the right areas, lifting the volume in the right. I don't know enough about sound mixing, but the way they mixed it, you know, really, I think gives it that quality that you just described in that it feels like you're there enjoying it in a club. Yeah, definitely. Was um, Alec responsible for all the film's graphics as well? Because they are equally great and fit in with the spirit of the film. No, no, no. no. So Capture, my production company, was one of the things we do is we do motion graphics and title design for other projects. We've done a lot of TV title design. And so we did, we did all of that ourselves. And I personally designed a lot of the graphics myself for the team of people that we have working with us at Capture. So it was all done in-house by us. It had to be, really, because we didn't really have any budget to outsource to other people. That's just what we do at Capture on a daily basis. So that was kind of one of the, the things of added value we could bring to the project to make it kind of look better and look more expensive than it actually was. Yeah. One of the things that is crystal clear from the film is that James isn't somebody who wants to sit on the sidelines. And, you know, that is at some points in the film, that's, you know, kind of where he falls into trouble. How was he with regards to the making of this film? I find it hard to imagine that he just went off you go once it was clear that you were going to be making this warts and all film. So how was that experience? James was um, as open as I think anyone could be. Well, you've got to remember when someone comes to you and says, hey, I want to make a film about your whole life and I'm going to tell everyone all your major mistakes and I'm going to have them all up on the big screen. Is that okay? I, I think there's very few people that say yes. I think, you know, the only reason this film really exists is because initially we didn't burst in and, you know, lay down exactly the film we knew we wanted to make in our first meeting. Mm-hmm. I think that would scare anyone off. If anyone was told they were going to make a film about their biggest mistakes and their biggest successes, I think everyone would be quite scared. So I think the process of how long it took meant that James trusted us. At the same time, you know, he was quite guarded. There were times where, you know, along that sort of nine, ten year period of trying to make the film that, you know, he, he didn't want to make it and he wanted to bin the idea. And there were times where, you know, he was the opposite and extremely helpful. Without him, we couldn't have got in touch with half the people we ended up interviewing. And, you know, inevitably, it's not like um, a lot of the other films like the Marlon Brando film, which is I'm a big fan of, or, or the Joe Strummer film, where your lead subject is dead. James is alive and kicking, making music. So, you know, he, he had to see the film before it went out. Mm-hmm. There was no way we were going to get around that. Do you know what I mean? So that process was quite daunting. And then we showed it to him in a private screening in Soho. And it was just like empty screen with me, producer, James's manager, and James in like 400 seat of cinema. It's kind of <laughs> kind of weird. So that process was, you know, that, that political game of chess that you have to play with management and with James to in order to get the film over the line was kind of one of the most tricky things, really. Yeah. Because, you know, there were things in there that he probably wouldn't want the world to see and know. But I think he listened to us and we just said, look, we've got to show a film that's, that's about struggle. If you just get all these things and we don't explain the fallout of them and we don't explain why things went badly and it's just this kind of sycophantic loving about James Lavelle's amazing career just no one's going to care and he got that and I think he's he has that unique ability to kind of assess things as they are seen by the public and he somehow was able to put himself out of it and I think accept that we, we made a film that people would be that would want to see rather than just 
a film about Uncle and James Lavelle's music, yeah. which it could quite easily have fallen into. The Man from um, Moax is um, hitting um, UK cinemas on the 31st of August, is that right? Yes, it's out in cinemas 31st of August, cinemas nationwide. You can book your tickets now on the website, themanfrommoax.com. We're doing one of those short releases in that it's only in cinemas. We're breaking the window, I think. You, probably your readership probably care about things like that. Yeah, they I do. I told yeah. this to... <laughs> so there's actually 10 minutes of exclusive cinema-only content in the cinema release. So you've got the film, and then you've got this kind of bonus feature at the end of the film. Plus, they're playing three exclusive tracks from James's new album, which you'll be able to listen to at the beginning of the film. Mm-hmm. But you can only do that in cinemas. So as much as we'll be on uh, DVD, Blu-ray, and home entertainment BOD online within I think two weeks of the main release from the 10th of September the cinema release has like exclusive content you will never be seen again so I would definitely recommend people go and see it in the cinema it's a much cooler experience cool I'll go for my third viewing then definitely <laughs> <laughs> um I don't know if um you're scarred from the multiple years that it took you to do this but um you know what do you have in the works next i'm I'm still working on the dvd extras right now so i'm still not out of the man from moax production juggernaut yet but um so i think once it's finished and all these things are put to bed i could start thinking about what i want to do from a directing point of view next i don't really know i've got a few ideas I actually would, I think I prefer to make a non-documentary next. I want to make either a horror film or a science fiction film. Yeah, yeah, I've got several ideas and that's kind of a different direction in terms of, I prefer to make a, you know, something that's fictional drama rather than another documentary. I'm working with New Black Films and uh, the Mandela Foundation on a Nelson Mandela documentary, which is being co-directed by Kweki Mandela and Kamal Akhtar. Um, Kweki Mandela is Nelson Mandela's grandson and it's there. They have the last ever interview Nelson Mandela gave before he died. And it's a kind of amazing biopic um, documentary about Mandela's entire life. So I'm, I'm working on that at the moment. That's taking up a lot of my time. Not as director, but assisting the production. <laughs> um, where should I send our audience to find out more about the film and then also, you know, stay on top of um, your work as well? So uh, themanfrommowax.com is the place. And we've also got a Facebook page, you know, just forward slash the man from Moax. Um, then there's an Instagram account as well. Those are the places that we're updating um, as the film comes out in first week of September, 31st of August onwards. Those are the best places. On there, you can find links to the UK release to our screen. Our screen are, are heavily on board to help promote the film. Trafalgar releasing our distributors and the BFI are releasing a limited edition three disc, seven inch size box set, which comes out on the 10th of September. Cool. And oh, yeah, one more thing I should add is that um, there's going to be an amazing soundtrack for the film, which is coming out with Island Records and Universal Music Catalogue. 19 tracks for the film on blue and red vinyl, limited edition. And that's coming out um, same day as the, as the film on the 31st of August as well. Brilliant. So that's going to be really cool. Matt, thank you so much for um, talking to me about the film and, you know, taking me back to my, you know, headier days of, um, you know, <laughs> DJing and going to clubs. You made me want to, like, go out again. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you so much. I think, as you can tell, I absolutely love the film because this is kind of my era of music and, you know, I was, you know, I was dancing along to every single beat of it and, you know, there's a lot in there for people who are fans of the label as well to discover that, you know, I didn't know as well. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you for that. Fantastic. Fantastic job. Well, no, thank you so much for the kind words. And yeah, I hope everyone really enjoys the film. You know, it's, it's a real up and down 
you know, roller coaster rock and roll story about never giving up. I hope everyone really enjoys it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Director's Notes podcast. Remember that directorsnotes.com is where you can read all our daily filmmaker interviews, as well as watch our playlist of short films curated for last week's Reading and Leeds festivals. Also, be sure to keep an eye out on the site for our upcoming coverage from the Encounters and London Film Festivals. Speak to you soon. Thank you.